Welcome to the Big MX Radio Podcast brought to you by Medterra CBD. You can go to medterracbd.com right now and enter discount code BIGMXRADIO20 to save 20% off every single one of your purchases. Every time you go to Medterra CBD, you can lock in BIGMXRADIO20 to save 50 save 20% off all of your purchases. Of course, the old um, discount code was BigMXRadio15, saved you 15%, an extra 5% uh, to all of the loyal BigMXRadio listeners is uh, definitely going to drive some sales that way. Hopefully, you guys support those guys. This podcast is also brought to you by Verb Moto, Wes and all the guys, Slaw Dog, Troy Dog, all the dogs over there, they're, they're working hard to get lots of content out. They got uh, different things coming down the pipe. And I uh, really appreciate you watching this, po- listening to this podcast. Maybe you're watching it. I don't know how because I don't put these on YouTube. Maybe I should. But um, with us on the line, he is uh, uh, a little bit of an amateur phenom, had a, uh, has got a really interesting story, and he's working on coming back into the fray and getting behind uh, the bars again. Uh, his name is Cameron Mitchell. Cameron, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Hey, not doing too bad, my friend. Anytime that I can shed some light on uh, a really interesting career uh, so far with uh, with a young uh, young rider, as well as uh, tie this in with the uh, the news that uh, not only we're using losing uh, factory connection Honda for the 2021 season, JGRMX will also be closing their doors. Crazy day in the sport of motocross, and uh, and a great opportunity for us to do some talking. Yeah, such a bummer there for our sport, but hopefully there's some new doors that open, I suppose. Yeah, well, but, you know uh, what, Other than uh, that, I'm... Go ahead. I will say I'm super stoked to have this opportunity, and uh, it's been a long time in the making trying to get this out, so um, I'm definitely excited. Hey, uh, honestly, I the, the pleasure is all mine, my friend. And uh, honestly, the, one of the reasons why I started my podcast so many moons ago is because there are so many stories within motocross. Uh, literally everyone that spent their life behind bars uh, racing dirt bikes can attest to um, everyone's got their story. Everyone's got some interesting, uh, like tales and, and just different, uh, hijinks that go on some more interesting than others. Uh, I think we're going to uncover a really interesting and, uh, uh, maybe a, a, a heart wrenching one with you. And, um, on the, on the heels of the, uh, Tristan Charbonneau interview that came out, uh, yesterday, uh, which uh, on, on the Wednesday, uh, you dialed me up and, uh, and you wanted to have your story told. And I, uh, after uh, a couple of messages with you, I think, uh, it was pretty evident that, uh, we needed to have you on and, uh, and have your story told. And it means a lot to, uh, to be able to bring that to the Big MX Radio faithful. Yeah, it was, uh, funny. I listened to quite a bit of Tristan's interview this morning and, I, I grew up around quite a bit. I went to Izzy's myself when I was younger and kind of like the last bit of when he was there. So a lot of what he was saying was so real for me. But uh, other than that, yeah, I'm just definitely excited to share my side of things and how everything panned out for me. Fair enough. So, uh, and actually I got some feedback from my good friend over at uh, We Went Fast, Brett Smith. He needs me to say fair enough a lot 
less times because if there was a drinking game involving me saying that, uh, there would be some pretty uh, inebriated individuals uh, on uh, listening to podcasts out there. Uh, I got that feedback this week. So um, let's before we get to uh, the like the I guess uh, more current portion of your story, let's spin the clocks back. Let's go where to the, back to where this story begins. And every racer has that moment when uh, they were gifted their first motocross bike. They saw a race for the first time. They got the bug and it stayed with them. Where does that story start for you, Cameron? Where did you get introduced to motocross? The whole the whole story for me is super funny, actually. So my first bike was a Suzuki JR50 when I was probably four years old. Um, and I loved riding that thing. I rode it a lot. And then uh, one Christmas, my parents ended up getting me like the KTM. I guess it was the Junior 50 back then. Like it was the coolest thing ever, you know? So yeah. I rode it for a little bit and I liked it. Like my dad just rode a little bit. And then I ended up burning my legs super bad and I was like terrified of them. So I didn't ride for a little bit. And then I ended up riding again. And my dad took me to a track and then they said there was a race and it was that night. So we did it. And I had a mailbox numbers on my bike, which is actually my amateur number growing up forever. Um, and I was the only kid in my class and I won that night, but I didn't know that. So I was just stoked that I won and I, you know, I never stopped from there, of course, but that's where it started for me. Fair enough. So we both started on Suzuki's. I was on the DS, which would eventually become the JR80, uh, and you, you on the slightly smaller machine. So uh, started out nice and young. Um, at what point did racing become serious for you guys? And I think you could probably echo the statement from Tristan that it got serious pretty quick. And that's something that doesn't always happen uh, in in where I'm from here in Canada. Uh, like it's more of it, we're competitive, but more of in a recreational sense, and mainly in the fact that uh, it's basically impossible to actually make a living racing motocross uh, in Canada. I think there's about ten guys in the nation who do, um, but. Uh, uh, like at what point were you uh, traveling for races, uh, seeking sponsorship, support, and uh, and and going out on the circuit, so to speak, doing some of those uh, uh, the nationals like um, Lake Whitney and uh, Ponca City stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so when I started racing, like I just mentioned, that was probably when I was seven years old, and I actually feel like I started late for like the states nowadays. My first year at Loretta's was uh, when I was 10 years old in the 65-79 class. So that was, you know, pretty later on compared to most at this point. And, um, and I think that year on a 65 is kind of when I started actually, you know, doing qualifiers, regionals, Loretta's, whatever races we could find. That's kind of when it started. I was about 9 or 10. And then um, from there, just every year I kind of progressed and went further and won some more races, bigger races, racing other bass kids, whatever we could do to try and get my name out there. We just never were able to go to the West Coast, which is where everybody was at and all the, you know, the big sponsors and everybody were at. So that was just a tough life. Fair enough. So who, uh, first of all, how old are you? And then, and then who were your main competitors coming up? Like, uh, give me some context of uh, who some of these East Coast hot shots would have been when you're uh, – you're heading off to like Silver Dollar and all those uh, those races to get set up to go to the uh, to go to Loretta's. Yeah, um, 
there's a lot of guys that I look at every weekend. It's funny that I lost titles to or won titles against. A lot of those names are like uh, Julie Swole, um, I've heard Aaron of March Banks. I grew up. Um, Pierce Brown and I have been racing since we were kids. Um, um, I didn't race Shimoda as much because he's a little younger than me. Um, of course, like when I got into 85s, the age groups were a little different. So of course I raced Sexton sometimes and, um, you know, a bunch of those guys, basically all the guys that you see that are East coast at some point or another, I lined up against, but I would say like out of those guys, those are the couple of names that kind of stuck with me throughout my whole amateur career. Fair enough. So you'd mentioned uh, training at Izzy's, uh, and that's something that uh, a lot of young riders from your area end up doing. Fantastic facility. Uh, a lot of good things happen there. Um, like, what was the support level like for you? Um, and and, uh, and how did you come to uh, to start training there? And, and what was that like? I definitely, um, when my results started improving, I guess the thing at that point that everyone was quote-unquote doing was going to a facility or finding some sort of training to get to that next level, and that's what we're trying to do with me. I didn't have anything factor or anything like that, and that made it tough, but I I had some pretty good support, I would say. Like, I, had, I made the most of what I had, and, um, yeah, from there, I just slowly, like, I feel like I got not undershadowed, but I just wasn't quite that flashy i was just good but i wasn't ever great if that makes sense so um okay yeah flew I, under the radar a little that, bit maybe didn't jump off the page yeah like i would always i feel like my name was up there or i was a top five guy or a breakthrough i won a couple titles when i was younger i won the verb classic which was a really big race growing up i won the verb classic performance award that year so that was pretty cool but um I trained at Izzy's for um, about two years, and, like, I was there with Tanner Stack and Chris Aldridge. So there were some really good guys that I learned a lot from, and Nario himself was good to me. So after that, I ended up moving to MTF, and that's where I finished out probably five years of my amateur career was there. So um, everybody there was good to me and taught me a lot and definitely got me to the point that I was at at the end of my amateur career. Fair enough. So, uh, wow, I do say that a lot. Um, but uh, um, working through those days and a lot of hard work, not something that I really got into with Tristan whatsoever, but uh, um, the scenario of, of riding at a, at a facility like that, putting that much time on bikes... Um, what's the real, what's the landscape for guys like yourselves who you're putting tons of time on your motorcycle that kind of gives way for a lot of opportunities to put the bike on the ground. Um, like how often are you sort of coming back from certain little injuries that come about? Um, just, just from the fact that you're on the bike that often. Yeah, I, that was probably the biggest thing in my amateur career was I got hurt way too much. I'll be honest. And a lot of it wasn't necessarily, I mean, I think everybody says this, but sometimes you're just the wrong place at the wrong time. There was, two years in a row at Loretta's, I got hurt in the first practice I got landed on and I broke my collarbone. And then the next year I got hurt in the, on the first moto start, broke my humerus. So two years in a row, I was done Nothing before the about that. first lap. No, so uh, 
I just definitely had some weird injuries that never really compiled, just always happened at weird times to make me miss events where maybe I, you can say I was ready and then got hurt. I don't, I don't know, you know, nobody ever knows, but, um, yeah, I, I definitely had my fair share of them and I still pay the price for them, but, um, being down there at MTF for, as I got older into my career and I lived down there by myself for a long time, just kind of under the wing of Colleen and, and everyone there and had to work on my own stuff a lot. And it was tough because my bikes would fall apart riding every day. Honestly, I mean, basically had one race bike that I'd ride on the weekends and then other ones I just try to keep together. So yeah, I think that it's a lot of wear and tear. Maybe. Like- yeah, Weekend warriors have a hard time keeping bikes together. You guys ride literally ten times that much, uh, as much. Absolutely, and um, I think that it takes a real toll on us. Like, I think it's really different for someone who's maybe my same age or same caliber, but their focus is their gym work, their health, their school, their nutrition, their riding. For me, I had so many other things that riding was obviously my focus, but it was really tough. It was just, it was, it could have been nice if I had someone to always kind of have my stuff taken care of. And I think that at the end of the day, once you do so many years of facility like that, it does make a difference, but I'm not complaining. I'm definitely thankful that I had the opportunity to be there in general. And I'm thankful for everyone that tried to help me when they could. Basically. Fair enough. Wow. Uh, I'm going to edit those out. Um, uh, Everybody has that. It's all good. I know, but now that now that it's been pointed out to me, I'm uh, I'm just like uh, uh, have to change something up. I actually I used to say a hundred percent, and then that was really weird because I was sponsored by a different goggle company. So uh, <laughs> that was pretty interesting in and of itself. But so in in a way, you were sort of uh, privateer amateur you know what i mean and i i I liken that to the fact that like you get guys like say like a ryan breeze who has all the speed in the world uh especially when he goes over to europe and stuff like that he's got a really good setup there um and he shows a lot of talent when he's uh, when he's fully supported and all he has to worry about is getting his mind right getting his nutrition right and going fast on two wheels um, but when it comes to a supercross, when he's got a million other things to worry about and representing his sponsors and is the bike falling apart or this, that, and the other thing, uh, guys like the, the factory dudes who they show up, they got their gear bag. If that, they might not even have their gear bag. They got all their gear brought to them and stuff like that. They show up with a backpack and the mindset to go fast on two wheels. And, and that's honestly a bit of an X factor of being able to, uh, to do special things on race day. So like that basically your whole program was based around that and, and it, it's it's unfortunate not everyone gets the the full factory support but uh it sounds like you were able to make some waves with uh, the support you did have yeah i mean i don't want to like make excuses for myself or no, of course not. make reasons to why i should or shouldn't have but um i definitely think that there are a lot of times where lack of equipment was really a downfall as as part of my younger career like i would say 85s was the biggest thing because my biggest competition on the weekends, like regionals or anything like that, were the kids that were on factory bikes. So it was me against them, basically. And, um, you know, every once in a while when my bike would be good, I would, you know, have a good moto or finish up front. And then sometimes I just struggled. So I think that you can make it work. It just definitely makes your job a lot tougher. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. So, wow. What was uh, your most debilitating injury coming up before uh, you really had to, uh, you had, I I wouldn't say an injury, but uh, something else that really sidetracked your progression and, uh, and moving forward in the sport? Yeah, I had, I just had a lot of your normal little annoying injuries, you know, but the the only gnarly one that I had was when I was younger, I shattered my foot, ankle and heel really bad. And it's never really been the same, but I kind of got over that. Um, and I've destroyed both of my shoulders pretty much. So I just had my left one reconstructed and it's getting a lot better, but my right one's still pretty bad. So I would say that my shoulders took the most damage out of all of it. Same here. We have that in common. I actually popped my shoulder out <laughs> playing beer league hockey, like not even two months ago. Yeah. The last straw for me was, uh, I was sitting in the hospital about to get a, a scan done and I sneezed and my left shoulder came out and I was like, it's time to get it fixed. You sneezed and your shoulder came out. Yeah, I, that's a problem. I, I, I kid you not. It was, um, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. Wow. Well, uh, that is uh, no good. Glad to hear the shoulder's fixed. Uh, I, too, have had one of them done. I probably get the second one done. Uh, but uh, decent mobility, thanks for asking. Um, but uh, recently, and not, not too far in the rearview mirror, you had something that uh, came across that uh, would basically stop any uh, athlete in their tracks, regardless of what type of support level they have and, and where they are in their motocross career. Uh, you had something happen that uh, probably uh, probably one of the scariest things to ever happen in your life. Yeah, that's honestly an understatement. Um, a lot of people don't know this. I've been epileptic since I was eight years old. So I've always grown up having seizures around my racing. And I mean, as gnarly as that sounds, it's been pretty gnarly. Um, I only have them when I sleep. So that's why I've been able to continue to live life the way I do. But they definitely played a role in the way I feel and everything like that. So, um, I was a big mystery for a long time. And, um, last year, 2019, um, I just had a lot of health issues going on and we were trying to figure them out. And I had so many blood work, so much blood work done and every test you could think of, I had biopsies done and, um, nobody could really figure anything out. And I tried changing my diet. I tried so many things. Um, we just really couldn't put a pin on what it was. We didn't know if I had like Lyme disease or some sort of autoimmune disease that we couldn't figure out. So it really started getting pretty worrying. I started losing a lot of weight. My skin color was getting pale. Um, I wasn't holding any food down. I wasn't eating a lot. And I just don't think anybody realizes that because it was such a drastic change and I was still trying to be, it was my first year in a class and trying to go pro. So wasn't really the time to just sit around with nothing known, I guess you could say. So I was still trying to get through. And um, I'm still amazed that my results were as quote unquote good as they were that year because my health was terrible. So fast forward to the beginning of October, which is leading up to Monster Cup. um, I got the phone call that I qualified for that race and it was like dream come true, but my health was terrible. And at that point, I had lost 30 pounds just from never being able to recover and not holding food down and not eating. And just, we didn't know what was going on, but I wasn't willing to quit because I was so close to this goal that I'd had so long. Um, 
And then uh, I raced Monster Cup that night, and I just was really, really ill mentally and physically, and not knowing why was the hardest part. Um, I didn't even – I did qualifying practice that night, and then um, I laid in my van literally in between qualifying practice and the night show the entire time. I didn't watch any of the pros ride. I couldn't even walk to the stadium because I didn't have the energy to spend instead of riding. So um, – that night I raced, kind of knowing I shouldn't have been racing, but I was like, it's it's my chance. Like, I, I finally have this goal in front of me, and I just, how could I turn it down if I'm never going to have it again? I, I don't know. It's kind of impossible. So I ended up putting my gear on right before opening ceremonies and uh, going up there, and I had the second gate pick on the night to Jet Lawrence, so I lined up next to him, and uh, I just – felt like I rode around that night and wasn't in my right mind. So the next day I was supposed to race open A class, a completely different race the next two days. And I ended up catching a flight home that morning from Las Vegas to go figure out what was wrong with me because we were worried. Um, So I saw my neurologist and I had MRIs and cascans down in my head. And that was the first place we started. And then I ended up seeing a neurosurgeon who um, kind of said that he thought he saw something on my scans and it could explain things, but he wasn't sure. And the only way to find out was to do a biopsy surgery on my brain. And I was like, well, okay, you know, that's kind of a, that's a tough decision, but yeah. um, I'd rather Sounds a bit do scary. it and, and figure this out. Yeah. So I just told him, I was like, I'll do it, figure out when. So that was um, right after Monster Cup that year. And then uh, my surgery was scheduled for January 17th, I believe. Um, And I had that biopsy surgery done. And then I got a call around um, the end of February, I would say, or no, sorry, the end of January. And the neurosurgeon's results from the labs were that I had a stage two or a grade two astrocytoma brain tumor that was cancerous. And it was in between my front and temporal lobe of my brain, which at that moment, it explained everything that was going on in my life and why my health had been depleting and why my brain symptoms were depleting. And he's like, we need to get this out as soon as we can. So I ended up having my next surgery scheduled for February 26th, which is basically the soonest we could do it by the time that my head healed from the first one. Um, I had about a four and a half hour procedure and I have two plates and three screws in my head. And the tumor is all gone successfully, thankfully. Um, so then from there, I, I had a long, tough road. I was in ICU for about a week. And then I, you know, was able to walk again. And I walked around the hospital and they released me. But the way this story gets more interesting is that right after I got home, about five days was when the COVID-19 pandemic broke out. So I just went through the most traumatizing life, life-changing experience in my life. And then the pandemic hit. So then we were isolated and unsure of everything. So all of my post-op therapy and scans and all of that got postponed. And it was just, it was tough. So um, I ended up not knowing how successful or not it was because I couldn't get a scan um, done actually after my surgery was done. So um, I ended up, Two months later, finding out from a neuro-oncologist, at first they wanted me to do chemo and radiation to try and fight this thing and make sure it was all done. 
And then they ultimately decided that I could wait it out and I just have continuous brain scans to monitor it. But um, as of now, I'm cancer and tumor free. So I'm very grateful that I came out on the other side of it. Um, yeah. Wow, man. Yeah, like I mean, that's, it's incredible to think that uh, you had like a ridiculous situation going on and then all of a sudden, yeah, COVID throws a wrench into things like you'd never believe. Um, that, that's got to be pretty hard. It was definitely just harder mentally than anything because I was struggling to kind of deal with what everything that happened because I thought it happened so fast. And then that happened, so it was kind of like, what's next? But, um, yeah, I just um, – I feel like there's just so many – so many people that had no idea what was going on with me and um it's it's just truly amazing that i didn't have any outstanding results or anything but i did well that year i had some notable results and i did okay at monster cup i guess considering what was wrong with me so um no it's uh it's definitely been life-changing i feel so much better after and that's the best part is that I felt like a new person in a lot of ways. I just have a long ways to go. So um, they said I wouldn't have made it past age 25 if they hadn't found it. So I'm just grateful. No kidding. Man, like uh, past 25, uh, down in the States, you'd only be able to have a beer for four years. I'm glad that your uh, your prognosis has changed and that you're going you're gonna to be uh, with us a lot longer than that. Um, what has been the, uh, the recovery process like for you? Uh, and I understand based on your, uh, your Instagram that, uh, you once again have a, uh, have a dirt bike in the garage. Yeah. Um, recovery was basically just getting myself back to feeling normal and trying to sleep normal and eat normal. And I slowly started exercising and, uh, working out when I could and, doing some PT, whatever it was that I was doing to help my head or my body. Um, took a while for my head to heal, honestly. I had some gnarly stitches in it that were just dissolvable. So it was like a month before those were even gone. Um, my hair is finally all back now, so I'm happy about that. But uh, I, I had those two surgeries, and then I decided to have my shoulder reconstructed because I had nothing else going on, and I was like, I might as well just do it. So... Um, I had that surgery and then ended up having another one for my sinuses after I broke my nose when I was 11 so I can breathe again. So I had four surgeries in about six months, which was super gnarly on my body, but I wanted to get it all done so that, yeah, so that whenever I was done, I was just felt like a new person. So that's kind of where I'm at now. I've been cycling again and uh, I got some concept two machines at home that I've been grinding on. So just trying to get myself back to a base where I can, ultimately ride again as soon as my bike's ready and i'm ready then i'll try and ride again that's awesome to hear man like uh like a a wild story that's uh looks like it's gonna have a really happy ending to it and get you back on the uh, on the track um like once your all systems go once the bike's back together and uh and all bolted up ready to rip um where's where's the first place that you're gonna put the knobbies in the dirt and then uh uh, like where, where are some, some, like, cause you're, you're a Georgia guy slash kind of in Florida as well. Where, uh, where's the first place you're going to hit once, uh, you're riding again. And then once the, uh, the flow comes back and you're, uh, you're feeling good about being on two wheels. Yeah. Well, with all of, uh, everything that's been going on with me, my mom and dad live in Georgia. It's like Northwest Georgia above okay. Atlanta. Yeah. So there's literally nothing up there to ride a dirt bike, like any Perfect. good. So. 
that's where my bike and everything is right now, but I'm technically a Florida resident, so that's where I live, and I'll be down here in Florida, so I'll find whatever good Florida tracks are open, and I'll be down here in the warm sun. Cool. Well, uh, uh, if uh, travel restrictions open up, um, like, yeah, just just let me know when I can come have a stay, because uh, uh, we're looking at, uh, like, minus degrees Fahrenheit uh, for the next three or four months so uh i hope that you have like a cot or something along those lines ready for me yeah no kidding that's brutal it's like 80 degrees here right now in florida where i'm at so um yeah anytime though i i'm i'm so excited to get back to that i know it's gonna be it's been over a year since i've ridden so i'm not necessarily worried about learning how to ride again i'm just more worried about how uh out of shape i'll be compared to where i was at and that's going to be hard. And I know the arm pump's going to be real. So I've been working oh, yeah. on that. But um, other than that, I'm super, super excited. That's awesome, man. Well, uh, I'm, I'm glad you were able to uh, come on and, and get your story told, man. Uh, it's uh, adversity and uh, a lot to, to take in. I, I hope that uh, um, you're, you, you feel like you were able to share everything. Like, uh, if there's anything else that you left out or, or or uh, maybe some takeaways that you'd want people to uh, to have once you once once they've listened to this. Like, like, what what are you hoping that people can uh, can take away once they've listened to uh, your story and sort of uh, taking it all in? Yeah, I would say a couple of things. The first being that um, I think that this sport is um, very. I wouldn't say judgmental, but it's it's very one-sided behind closed doors, so you don't ever know what the rider, the racers are going through or mm-hmm. how gnarly, whatever their situation really is. So at the end of the day, it's just, I don't know. I think that head injuries and brain health in our sport should be a very serious thing, and that's something that I want to be a part of trying to get better, regardless if it's concussions or just screenings of, head injuries or just making sure that kids coming up to the ranks are taking the proper time if they do hit their head because it's a long-term thing. So I would just say that that's something that I don't think it's talked about a whole lot, but it's a really big deal in our sport and the way it's going, it just needs to keep getting spread. Fair enough, man. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to, uh, to discuss this. Uh, it was, um, it was eye-opening for us, and uh, I hope that you'll uh, you'll come on again sometime. Talk about uh, uh, your program moving forward. I hope to hear some good news about uh, the the arm pump getting getting worse and then getting better over time. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, wouldn't wouldn't shy away whatsoever of having you on again, my friend, to sort of uh, uh, unpack some things, talk about uh, the amateur scene uh, and all the ins and outs of that, because I think there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of layers to that that uh, a lot of um, fans don't know about and, and, and no, not fully aware of how things work and how contracts work and, and, and how much of a meat grinder uh, like uh, amateur motocross can be and mo- professional motocross can be. It's, 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 it's a wild, uh, it's the wild west out there. So um, we appreciate you making some time tonight. Absolutely. Um, last thing I will say is that I'm stoked. I actually ended up getting my supercross license. So with all this being said, I just figured I might as well do a supercross. So I plan on making my pro debut at Daytona unless anything changes. So, uh, whatever number I decide to get, 
I, it's not anything serious. I just, I worked my whole life to get to that point and then had it taken away from me. Mm-hmm. So I want to just show that it's possible that I guess your dream can come true. Even if it's not quite the same as it was, it's still going to be huge for me. Fair enough. Well, you, you drop that on me makes me blow my wig back. Let me tell you this. Uh, when it comes time to register for that Supercross, uh, let me know because Bigger Mix Radio is going to cover your entry for that race. No way. Yeah. That's insane. I appreciate it. That. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm waiting for that to happen, and uh, we already got a hotel and everything. I'll, I'm going to have myself as ready as I can get, but um, I'm super excited to run a pro number and a pro jersey for however long it is, man. It just hey. it felt like I know that it, it was a long time coming where I felt like it was never ever going to happen again. So, well, awesome, man. I I I can definitely uh, connect with that. I'm glad that you're uh, you're going to follow through with it. That's way too much hard work to not uh, uh, go ahead uh, get the pro number. Uh, and I'm sure that there's uh, some gear companies listening that if they hear this. I know your uh, answer guy. Maybe answer continues to help you out with that, but uh, I'd love to see as much um, attention and support to like whether it's if, whether it's one race or or uh, uh, the whole East Coast swing. Well, uh, I'd love to see uh, some support sent your way. But uh, um, at the very least, we will take care of your uh, we will take care of your your race registration for the Daytona Supercross 2021. And, uh, yeah, sounds great. Uh, I will say that as of now, I don't have anything, anybody really helping me gear wise from head to toe. Um, I have a couple other good sponsors that are staying with me around the bike and all those good things, but yep. anybody that wants to help me out in the future, feel free to let me know. Fair enough. Well, uh, we will definitely, uh, I'll, I'll send, send this around to a few of the, uh, the guys I know who might be interested in helping you out in that way. Uh, if someone's listening uh, who has some connections, please do that as well. Uh, get this thing out there. Get uh, This is a really cool story, and uh, I'm glad we were able to have you on tonight, man. Yeah, thank you, and thank everyone for listening and taking the time to hear my story. It's uh, it, it means a lot. Cameron Mitchell here on the Big MX Radio podcast number 910 in your program and on Instagram, probably after this interview, number one in your hearts. Uh, Thanks for coming on, my friend. Do not hang up just yet, but for podcast sake, we're going to cut it off right there. Perfect. All right. Thanks, Cameron. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's move on to uh, a big piece of news that came out yesterday. Uh, I wanted to package this along with the interview with Cameron, and uh, it's something that is pretty important to me and uh, pretty earth-shattering when it comes to the sport of motocross. Um, coming down yesterday around 6 p.m., uh, se- 7, uh, 7 Eastern, um, the... JGR MX uh, motocross team announcing that uh, they bid farewell. Um, they're going to be shutting their doors. Uh, Suzuki USA uh, going elsewhere with their support, and uh, that's pretty big news to uh, to the, those uh, both in the media as well as um, like the sport, like globally. It, it, it's absolutely wild to see um, first. About a month ago, uh, we lose uh, one of the most key sponsors in uh, what was one of the most prestigious 
250 teams and out of 450 teams with Geico Honda. FC Honda is kaputs uh, for now anyway. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't totally be surprised to see those guys come back just because Ziggy and all those guys were so passionate about uh, racing and doing it like they originally did it. I don't know if people know this, but the original FC Honda team, the first year, I think their first, uh, their title sponsor, so to speak, was Jack in the Box. Uh, to my understanding, they did not receive a single dollar from those guys. It was more of a throw the logo on the on the bike and, and hope that they uh, come in with some advertising dollars, and that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, but uh, they went racing with Michael Rocco regardless, and and, and did well. Uh, of course, Michael Rocco being a former champion and and a badass on two wheels, so that wasn't too much of a stretch. But um, speaking specifically about JGR, a number of things uh, stick out to me with this team over the years. Talk about a team that had so many obstacles in their way. A team that, um, even in their very first year, injuries to riders, uh, difficulty um, locking down like title sponsors. Uh, they had a lot of sponsors come and go. They had a ton of riders come and go. I think you could probably fill a gate in the 450 main event, if not more. Maybe an entire uh, night show of guys who at one point rode for uh, for JGR, and I guess you got to throw uh, uh, both Justin Brayton and um, Josh Grant in there twice, because I believe they both had a couple of stints there. Uh, but you think of the names, James Stewart, many others, uh, this last year with Joey Savacci and uh, Alex Martin. Um, they gave uh, a rookie uh, like Enzo Lopes, a chance to uh, to make a name for himself, and now he's making some noise in the 250s. Um, but honestly, like there's certain things, like it really bums me out that uh, the team has to go. But also, my my biggest question is why they weren't able to uh, lock down a a title sponsor. Like it just so much uh, talented people over there. Uh, they've worked with a, a gr great manufacturer like Yamaha and Suzuki. They were never able to really have lights out awesome support uh and, and like a consistent um title sponsor which is very concerning and very just kind of puzzling because it, like you think of jgr joe gibbs racing uh is such a name and you'd think they'd have people on the advertising side and they'd people on the uh on the sales side that would be uh would be able to have the connections uh, from the NASCAR side to at least get a phone call or uh, a cold call with some of these big companies that might have uh, to break off even a, like a, a percentage of their, uh, a small percentage of their uh, annual advertising budget to throw at Supercross. Um, and and to, to that point, I think that it's a bit of a, a, um, a miss on the ability to sell a sport. And I think the entire industry is uh, guilty of that. Uh, not being able to uh, close a lot of deals that could uh, uh, can see us uh, with a lot of those sponsorships that would be so, so vital. So uh, it bums me out that uh, JGR is not going to be there. Uh, I think the Suzuki deal is uh, going to move over to the HEP Suzuki team, uh, which I guess there'll, there'll be some uh, some news in the, in the coming weeks as to who's going to be riding for that team. Uh, huge uh, thumbs up to... Uh, everybody over there, 
uh, Dustin Pipes, uh, a former racer who then went on to, uh, the, during his entire racing career, uh, I think at one point he was national number 81, uh, but uh, and, and put in some good rides. But the whole time he was doing that, he was in school. He was uh, in sports marketing uh, at, uh, I believe he was going, going to school in in, uh, in Utah. Maybe something along those lines. I, I, I might have to have Dustin on to uh, to discuss it with him. But either way, um, bummer deal. Uh, Suzuki moving over to another team. Uh, Joe Gibbs moving out. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, where the guys that uh, the, the intricate – and the integral members of the team end up uh, on their feet. I, I think uh, there's there's maybe there's space out there for Jeremy Albrecht, um, a number of people over there, Johnny Oler, the suspension guy. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, the horsepower maker over there, Dean Baker. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But uh, yeah, either way, it's a, it's a bummer deal for JGR. And uh we're sorry to report and sort of just give our two cents on that. But hopefully you guys enjoyed this interview with Cameron Mitchell. Kid was an absolutely fantastic interview and uh, looking forward to connecting with him again sometime and uh, seeing how his Daytona Supercross effort goes. Anyway, guys, thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you were able to watch this, I'm impressed because I didn't make it available to watch. Um, but that's uh, just me fumbling my words as usual. But uh, thanks, for, thanks for tuning in. And uh, if you like this podcast, if you enjoyed it, uh, send me a DM on Instagram. And uh, um, anybody who d DMs me uh, from now, Friday the 13th, until next Friday, which I believe is the 20th, uh, we're going to do a giveaway uh, of uh, some Medterra CBD uh, good morning pills. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested in trying CBD, you want to try a product from Medterra, and, uh, and, and you want to go send me a DM, let me know what you think about this podcast, you'll be entered to win. Um, so DM me uh, at Big MX Radio on Instagram, and uh, those who enter will get hooked up. Thanks again. Talk to you later, guys.